Well, as many of you know, before I got involved in church planting as a pastor, I was a youth pastor, and, and that tended to cause me to work hours that were interesting. In other words, I was late at night. Um, most people do their work uh, nine to five. When you are a youth minister, uh, you, you actually end up at the, you know, sometimes working as late as midnight before you go home. And so it wasn't uncommon for me to be at the church where I worked uh, and be the only person there sometimes after a kid's event, getting something ready or getting cleaned up. And, and one particular time I was at the church, and it was a fairly large church, and there was construction going on at the church. And uh, it was in the suburbs, but again, it was maybe midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and I was wrapping up my stuff. And, uh, you know, it never occurred to me, especially in Tallahassee, Florida, that I would ever be in danger, but there was something about coming out of the offices, which is, was in the heart of this um, church complex, uh, into the main hallway of this rather large facility, and it, was, and it was dark. And as I walked towards the front door, um, someone jumped out and flashed a light right in my face from outside the front doors. And it scared me to death. I almost had a heart attack. And then I found out it was a police officer. And the, what's interesting is, is that because it was a construction site and they saw my car out there and they saw a light on inside and it was 1 o'clock in the morning, a, a good officer would make assessment that this is odd. Not being perhaps familiar with the notion of the youth minister who is nocturnal by nature staying up late to work he would presuppose that there was something uh, nefarious taking place on the church grounds. And so one of the techniques they teach them is you surprise the person. And so he actually had his little mag light thing ready to go. He saw me coming and he jumped out just to see what I would do. And, and it actually is a police technique. And I wanted to, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I was... And then when I, when I realized it was him, I, I was like, I'm going to kill you. I actually said that to a police officer. It was the first time in the history of the world it was said and not received poorly. And so I, 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 I've reflected on that from time to time because it was one of those moments where actually something good was taking place, but my reaction to it was very frightened, very scared, very anxious. Uh, and, and I see this metaphorically playing out in our text today as we look at the reaction of the shepherds to the appearance of the angels and the heavenly hosts. Uh, on one hand, it had to have been startling. But on the other hand, once they got past that, they must have been really amazed that they had been singled out for such an honor. Uh, most of us come to church today uh, unnerved about something. Uh, for some, it is a relationship that is going sideways and causing anxiety. For others, it could be work-related pressure that is creating a prevailing sense of worry. Uh, still others are here today because they're not at peace with their Heavenly Father. And it is into all of these situations here on Advent Peace Sunday and in our text that God speaks, fear not. We celebrate the advent or the arrival of the Savior today by looking at a peace that is promised to all on whom his favor rests. 
the peace that God offers to his children is the benefit of knowing him intimately through Jesus. And today's text shows that rather beautifully, if I do say so myself. Let me give you a quick background on Luke chapter 2, though, and Luke in general. You can see in in verse 19 of Luke 2, and we won't flash it up there, but you'll know the reference to Mary indicates that she was the source of Luke's information. At least that's what Orthodox scholars believe. See, Orthodox Christians, those who maintain through the millennium that the, the apostolic written word of the of the Gospels and the letters of the New Testament, that they are the Word of God. These Orthodox Christians have maintained that the New Testament, at least the Gospels, are actual historical accounts of Jesus' life and not mythology. Even though we have to recognize that some criticism has come to Luke and some questioning has come about their historical accuracy. I'll say this to you, and I'm going to take a quick side road just to demonstrate something that will hopefully give you some pause and rest so that you can hear the Word of God today and receive it as such. Uh, There is uh, an explanation for many of the so-called historical inaccuracies if you want one, but I'll say today that if you've already determined, and I can say on on a firsthand basis I know what this is like, if you've already determined that you don't want Scripture to say something, there is no explanation that will ever satisfy your intellectual opposition. Now, Luke, in Luke chapter 2, claimed that Quirinius was the governor during the census of Jesus' time. And here's the problem. Quirinius began his governorship of Syria in AD 6, and this is too late to line up with the date of Jesus' birth. See, Jesus was born before Herod died in 4 BC. Now, there is a plausible explanation. Let me, exp- let me give it to you. Uh, the census is not like a census we have in our day where they send you an electronic file and you click a bunch of things and send it back to them or you get it in your postal and they have prepaged postage and it gets sent back the very next week a census in the ancient world would take forever, and I mean literally a long time, tracking everybody down, going to all these Roman provinces, trying to collect all the names and see who in the world was in our world. This would take years. And, and so Luke's gospel, circulated during the time of the apostles, mentions that Quirinius was the governor, but likely what happened was is the, the census began under Herod's watch during Jesus' lifetime, and it took years to complete, and by the time it was over, Quirinius was the governor. And I mentioned that, that this was written and circulated during this time. We know that's the case in terms of Luke's gospel because Luke himself copied 75% of his gospel from the gospel of Mark, and not, and not in any shy way. Both he and Matthew, who copied 95% of Mark into his gospel, used Mark as the central text, and then what they did was supplement it with other information that was relevant to their context. And in Luke's case, his relationship with Mary certainly provided some data and some information that Luke felt would be relevant to other people in other cultures. And so Luke himself 
added details that were simply unavailable to either Mark when he wrote his gospel or Matthew, who as well was using Mark as a guide to write his. Now, I mention all this because for our purposes, we cling to the scriptures as the historical account of what Jesus said and how his followers applied the realities associated with the gospel. Now, we will study the Advent narrative in context and see the beauty of the arrival of the Savior, but we also, as Christians, look to the Word of God to supernaturally work in our lives. It's one of the beautiful realities of Scripture is that we can read the same passage and have different applications, as they say in seminary. There's only one interpretation, but there are many applications. And for us, as Christians, we, we look at the Scriptures through a divine lens where we say, you know, God, what are you actually trying to say? What are you trying to show us about yourself? What are you trying to show us about the nature of life itself? We believe the Scriptures have a practical application. And the details of this story are critical for our, our, for our understanding of how the Prince of Peace, Jesus, imparts rest into our life. And it, what we'll discover is that our experiences are actually very similar to these lowly shepherds. Now, who were these shepherds in Luke chapter 2? It was worth a thought or two. Uh, it seems to me that that would be a rather boring lifestyle, you know, sitting out in a field with a, with a staff trying to keep sheep from running away, or whatever it is that you are shepherding. Uh, you know, the interesting thing is, is that these particular shepherds were kind of the marines of shepherds. <laughs> they were a tough bunch, and the way we know that from history is they were the night shepherds. They were the night watch shepherds, and there's something interesting that would take place at night. Theft and animals that were going to tear apart the sheep. The night watch was for people who would keep an eye out for predators, both human and animal. They believed in God, but they were earthy cats. They were, they were as salt of the earth, working class, blue collar, middle America as they could be, being shepherds in the Middle East. And, and we see in them a reaction to the appearance of the divine that would not be all that dissimilar in our case. Uh, when God shows up, they are terrified. So these are not like empty people out there going, I just want to take care of my sheep. I mean, these are guys that are kind of sort of ready for something bad to go. And when these angels show up, they sort of freak out. They were afraid of God's movement for the same reasons we might be. And so a quick observation about why we would perhaps, three reasons why we perhaps would react as they did when, when they had God enter into their world. And the first is this, like them, we may already be on edge due to life circumstances and we really aren't wanting any more change. When I talk to people about what it is about God and their new interaction or a, a movement God may be trying to make into their lives, oftentimes what people will say is, you know, I, I just want my life the way I want my life. And, and so if your life is already a bit chaotic and your life is already sort of on edge, then when you start, when God starts to say, okay, listen, I'm going to start moving into this world, 
sometimes people just fear the chaos that comes with that or the perceived chaos. I would also point out that these shepherds in Israel were obviously God believers. These are people that were not atheistic, but maybe, perhaps like many of us, they had developed a rather naturalistic view of the world, and how hard would that be to do? It, we, it is not common for us to see angels. Uh, every now and again, I'll meet somebody who said they had a supernatural experience where they saw something that seemed like a, an aberration of some sort. And, you know, as a, as a pastor, I find myself skeptically going, uh, maybe. And, and isn't that terrible? You'd think that as a religious person, as a cleric, I would be like, yes, I'm sure the Spirit of God revealed to you through angels whatever it is you're saying. But this is the culture we live in, and this is the world we live in, and we live in the era of science and renaissance. And, and, and you know, to be somebody who is enlightened, you, you kind of sort of have to almost never expect the supernatural to take place in your life. You develop what, you know, is referred to oftentimes as a very deistic view of the world where God kind of keeps his distance from you. And then there's a third reason why people might react in some fearful way towards God's movement into their world. Um, you know, seeing a, a ghost would scare the crud out of you. Um, but more than any of these, the biblical experience of people is when they see the holy, it undoes them. They find themselves all of a sudden in a place of great discomfort. And I would liken it to when you'd meet like somebody who you considered to be uh, an idol of yours, a celebrity, somebody you looked up to, somebody you admired. I don't know what and who that would be in your field of endeavor, but all of us have somebody that we think, wow, wouldn't that be amazing? And, and, and sometimes you could get really tongue-tied. I, I had a friend who, who got to meet Whitney Houston back in her heyday when she was young and, and not using drugs and was just at the top of the world. And he said when he met her, he got so tongue-tied, he couldn't say a thing. She was so beautiful. He was just like, <laughs> I mean, it, and you can understand that and appreciate that. Well, in the Bible, what it describes is that we would have an encounter with the holy that would make us recognize just how unholy we were. And we would be rightfully confident in our unworthiness and perhaps terrified of judgment. Now, you have to ask, as I do, how do you alleviate this anxiety in our lives? Uh, our Advent theme today is peace, and the traditional way we've sung this in carols is peace on earth, goodwill towards men. But what the text, the text actually says in verse 14 is, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So it seems like there is a condition to the peace. He has to be pleased with you, and like me, you're going to ask, well, how do I get some of that? You know, how does one sign up to be somebody who, with whom he is pleased? How, how can we know whether his favor rests on us? And so today I'd like to look at Luke 2 and... Uh, highlight a couple of ideas I have from the passage, some, some thoughts that we have that what we'd hope is that at the end of this sermon, we'd see how practically speaking, Jesus wants to speak into your life and mine and cause us to not fear. 
There are some that say that Jesus has said over, or the scriptures have said over 365 times to fear not. And that's not true. It's a cute little Rick Warren devotional. But the, the reality is, is that there are a hundred different references to fear not in the Bible. And I'm certain that there are hundreds more where the theme of don't be anxious about anything and don't worry is prevalent. Uh, this is a concern of God because he knows that anxiety can ruin us. And today, what we hope is that we would see a glimpse into how we can experience peace. So let's take a look. The first thought I have for you this morning is this. We experience peace when we're sure God has a plan. All right, and when you see Luke 2, 8 through 10, the initial uh, experience of the shepherds is uh, pretty unsettling. So it says in verses 8 through 10, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch. Again, there you are, keeping watches, watching for thieves, watching for predators, over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. We know peace when we know God is in charge of our circumstances. The choir of heavenly hosts and the angels didn't come upon these farmers by accident. Uh, they weren't lamenting, you know, God sent us here to sing some songs, but boy, night's a really tough time to gather a crowd. I mean, they didn't accidentally come upon these shepherds. This was part of God's destiny for these shepherds. God knew what he was doing. He intentionally chose to reveal himself to these few people. And God entered into and disrupted their lives by his gracious choice and did so for their benefit. And this is a challenge for many of us because some of us have predetermined what we think our lives are going to be about. I'm going to have this job. I'm going to go to this place. And so when God comes into your life and says, I got a plan for you, that can initially cause some disruption it can cause you anxiety because you're forced to sort of let go of what you think you're going to do with your life. And God jumps into that and says, I have a plan. And sometimes God is calling us to trust his plan for our lives. And we need to lay down our sense of how it should go. King Solomon wrote in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. For some of us, the challenge is that we're locked into a lifestyle that actually excludes God. I mentioned before this deism. That's a theological supposition that God exists, but he's off in the distance. And he's like a clockmaker who kind of just winds up the clock and then, you know, I don't intrude. I'm not, I don't break into the natural world. That's a, a comfortable place for some of us because what it does is it precludes, we think, God from changing what's going on in our lives. But God has a way of breaking through all of our naturalistic attempts to control him by doing something undeniable and undeniably supernatural to us. But it is in his real presence that we actually know safety. You see, there is no greater place of safety that these shepherds could have been in that evening keeping watch over their flocks 
than to know that they had an army of God's angels watching over the whole enterprise. I mean, would you have wanted it any other way? You know, if you're out there and you're scared and you're working your flock and you're thinking, okay, this could go south anytime. Keep your eye out for the bandits. Keep your eye out for the wolves. You know, initially you're going to be like, oh, I don't want God. Whoa, these angels, this glory of God is freaking me out. But when you step back and think about it, you're thinking, do we really want it any other way? Have we ever been safer? I have a restaurant I go to for coffee around the corner, Tom's. It's a new restaurant on Walnut between Hill and Lake. The safest place in Pasadena oftentimes because there are like eight cops parked outside. They're sitting there drinking their coffee. You know how great it is to be in a restaurant with eight heavily armed people? Police officers? You're like, this is incredible. I, just, I have never felt so safe in my life. See, and this should be what comforts us. Jewish shepherds would know this too from their own experience of quoting Psalm 23. You may have heard this at funerals before, but it begins, the Lord is my shepherd. But verse 4 of Psalm 23 actually says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, the, the images of a shepherd who is protecting sheep and God has a rod and a staff. As you no, if you were here last week, and if you don't know, I'll explain why I'm carrying this around. Um, I was trying to obey a friend, Caleb, and get exercise, and, uh, and, and I went out and tore uh, a ligament in my chubby foot because uh, I had not warmed up properly, and so I'm walking around with this now beautiful cane, uh, and, and uh, because I have to keep the pressure off until I have an MRI and they figure out what's wrong with my foot. But this past week, I discovered that I have never felt so safe in my whole life carrying this thing around. All of a sudden, I'm thinking, even when I get better, I'm toting this thing with me everywhere I go. I've also noticed that people are really kind to me and open doors for me. It's, it's remarkable. I'm all of a sudden the, the center of attention, which is what I've always longed to be. And so now, now I've got this weaponized stick with me. And this is really the image of the shepherd. He's got this Moses staff. Let my people go. You've seen the image. Well, this thing here was like to move sheep from place to place. But think about how important the staff would be, the rod would be in fighting off either robbers or, or animals that were predators. What other weapon did you have? You could do the whole David King David slingshot thing, which apparently did work because David had quite a bit of skill in that department. But it's not like they carried shotguns. This is the first century. So when God comes to you and I and says, I'm going to move into your life, what he is doing is providing a protective, shepherding presence in our lives. And when we experience peace, when we know God has a plan, we know that God is in charge. And all of a sudden, we can rest. Second thing I'll share with you about peace and how it gets enfolded into our life is this. We experience peace when we are assured of the good news. So there's something about coming into the presence of God that can be unnerving, but when God actually speaks and tells you, I've got good news for you, it does amazing things to change our perspectives, not just about our life, but about Him. 
Again, verses 10 through 12. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you great news, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. We experience this peace when God comes to us and says, I've got good news. If you, like a shepherd who was ungodly, or any number of people from St. Peter to the prophet Isaiah, uh, would come into the presence of God and, and feel like, oh no, I'm exposed, I'm unholy, I'm unworthy. We experience a peace when the Savior can communicate to us that I have good news for you. Jesus has come to save us. The human reaction to being terrified by a holy God's appearance is seen throughout the Scripture. It's not only natural and healthy, uh, it's not only natural but healthy to initially be freaked out by the holiness of God. And you may ask, well, why is that? I'm not fond of that type of notion. Well, it's just true that he's above us in every way. If you even took the issue of uh, moral purity and righteousness off the table, which you can't because the scripture from Genesis to Revelation describes us as unworthy of his grace and love, but a recipient of it nonetheless. And at the same time, uh, speaks of this God of unbelievable holiness and majesty. Uh, somebody whom we ought to fear and revere. And yet there's this mixture of him being with us, right? Somebody who is, is with us, he's present with us, and at the same time being other. It is natural for us, even if we took the purity issues off the table, to be like, he's the creator of the universe. I should be intimidated by his sheer size, if nothing else. He is above us. And in the case of Jesus, we see in this story this beautiful coming to earth, the pursuit of us, the imminence of Jesus, him incarnate, God leaving eternity, and Jesus, his son, being born of a man, the God-man Jesus. We see his pursuit of us. We see him in this humble state, born in a manger, not in the castle, and, and we see this beautiful picture, but we, while we are certainly reassured of his tenderness and his humility towards us, we cannot forget that he is God. He is a holy God. And that should make us marvel that we get to walk with him. And it should make us not take his presence for granted or foolishly imagine that we are equals. You know, Jesus is my homeboy might make for a cute t-shirt, but that doesn't really accurately describe the relationship we ought to have with Jesus. He is among us, but don't mistake him for us. He loves us. He is with us, but he is another person altogether. A friend of mine whose in-laws attend our church, and I've known him for longer than they have, so I consider myself closer. But anyway, he, uh, his, uh, my buddy Morgan works for SpaceX, and uh, 
So, of course, if you know, SpaceX is headed and founded by Elon Musk, whose net worth as of yesterday was $11 billion, in case you're tracking. I am, because I prepare sermons. Elon Musk has started several companies and is considered by most to be a genius uh, on multiple levels. And the way my friend Morgan tells it is that at SpaceX, he has an office right in the middle of everybody else's, and that it is fairly, a fairly regular occurrence that he will just walk through the cubicles talking to somebody and that he'll walk by you and you wouldn't have even noticed that it was him. He even dresses like everybody else there, very cool and casual, very pro-cash, as they call it. You know, and he, he, just, he looks the part, he is the part. But my buddy Morgan knows for sure how inappropriate for him it would be to yell across the cubicles, Yo, Elon, want to grab some lunch? You know how weird a look he would get from Elon Musk if he did such a thing? He understands that his net worth is $11 and Elon's is $11 billion. And, and it's not to say that God doesn't see us all the same, but analogously you get it that you know, he knows in his context that it would be unbelievably out of place and inappropriate for him to kind of sort of treat this guy who walks amongst them and, and employs them and, and by every indication seems to be a really great person for whom to work. Um, there is a difference. And, and I, I want us to appreciate both the, the intimacy that is ours in Christ and at the same time recognize that we humbly approach him even as his precious children, even as his children who he loves and adores. We, we still approach him with the awe and respect that he deserves. The scriptures throughout describe God's disposition to, towards those who think too much of themselves. Whether it's the original reference in Proverbs 3.34 or James, Jesus' brother's reference in James 4.6 or Peter, Jesus' top disciple in 1 Peter 5.5, 5, the word is very clear. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you are a mess and you are humble about it, you're going to get the, the kindness and love of a Savior that you can't believe how gracious he's going to be to you. But if you are self-sufficient and proud like the Pharisees of his day or the Pharisees of ours, you're going to discover that God is opposed to that. You see, we experience peace with God when we're assured of the good news, and that good news calls us into the presence of a loving Savior. We're told in verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus is called the Savior. And that implies one important thing for you, for those around you. You need saving. And that's a sticking point for some. But the truth is that a holy God doesn't owe sinful, broken humanity a single thing except judgment, but what he extends instead is mercy and salvation and grace to all who humbly look to the Savior. And like the shepherds, we quite naturally are afraid of the holy because we are naturally quite unholy. 
Yet the good news of great joy for all the people is that Jesus has come to save you from the punishment that is due you and me for our sins. And when a person genuinely believes this to be true, when they humbly receive the gift of forgiveness in Christ, it changes their disposition about seeking the Lord. One of my favorite portions of this narrative is Luke 2.16, where it talks about the response to all of this when they, they were given the good news. It says in verse 16 of Luke 2, And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Most of the time in the Old Testament, you're told not to do things hastily. You're told to be patient. You're told to not be uh, imprudent. In this particular case, when somebody discovers that God is far more gracious and he is present, and you discover that you're okay and that good news has been proclaimed to you, you run to the God, to the God of your, your soul who loves you. They, they hastily went there. They dropped everything. It doesn't say what they did with the sheep. I guess their boss couldn't have been too happy about that. But I got to tell you, they made a beeline for Bethlehem. And when we know we've been made acceptable to God and his favor is upon us, only because he's chosen us by grace, we run to Jesus. When we are at peace with God, we're not afraid to come into the presence of Jesus because we'll always hurry where our soul longs to be. And our soul longs to be intimate with our Creator. The wonderful reality of the incarnation of Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, is that, as it says in John 1, Jesus was the one through whom all things were created and in some ways, we're, we're running back to our Creator. This is what we were made for, for intimacy with God. And in Christ, you are given access to that which your soul craves. Recently, I, I uh, got in touch with a friend who I've known over the years. Uh, I would perhaps now refer to him as an acquaintance. Um, he and I have walked much of the same road and known each other for 15 to 20 years, we've been in many of the same associations and known a lot of the same people, and at varying times, I imagined I had a unique relationship with him, one that was a real friendship, and for a couple of different reasons, I picked up the phone recently, and I was thrown off a bit when his response to me was, hey, listen, will you get in touch with my secretary and find out when I have some time? And I thought the relationship is different than I imagined it would be. You see, you know a lot about your relationship with someone by your access to them. If an acquaintance refers you to their secretary in order to schedule a time to talk, you likely aren't as close as you once imagined. As disappointing as that might have been on a personal level, it made me realize what's true about the good news for all people. The good news of great joy is that you have access to the Father through the grace offered you in Christ Jesus. And because of the Savior, when you call the Father, you don't get a secretary who reschedules a time a week or a month later. You get immediate, immediate access to the Father. He is there for you. This is the good news. And when we realize 
that Jesus has made a way for us to not be afraid in his presence, not be afraid of his movement into our life. We are assured of this good news and given peace. One of the great verses used by Martin Luther, who is thought of as the spark that lit the fires of the Reformation, was Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And while I don't have it on the screen, it is something that I would encourage you to meditate upon today because it is, in two verses, the essence of this good news. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. May you and I know peace through the Prince of Peace today. Let us pray. Father, we have all sorts of reasons why we may be anxious. And uh, what we know for sure is that you have told us that there is peace in your presence. Whether it was the way you calmed the storms with your disciples, Jesus, or whether it was the way you reached out to the prophet Isaiah to reassure him that he was okay in your presence because you were going to graciously cleanse him. Today we come to you and present our lives to you and know that unless we are in your presence, we will never really know peace. That we know peace when we are surrounded and enveloped by the Prince of Peace. So today our greatest need, Lord, is to know you. And I pray that during this uh, Advent season, you would begin to bring about a peace in our lives that was as real as what the shepherds felt so that we too would run into your presence. For we pray this in Jesus' name.